Katie Tregidden, and this is Circular, a podcast exploring the intersection of craft, design and sustainability. Join me as I talk to the thinkers, doers and makers of the circular economy. These are the people who are challenging the linear take-make-waste model of production and consumption and working towards something better. In this series, we're talking about waste. I think it's really important to build something based on values rather than just product. Otherwise, we just end up with a very linear system that isn't inclusive of these complexities or systems or that actually take into account leftovers or these ideas of value and respect. It feels a bit more human-centric than it does planet-centric. And I think value systems offer a completely different perspective, one that is more inclusive. If you think about it, everything is made of a material of some sort. So in some ways, it's an obvious thing to specialise in. But in fact, most people take materials for granted to such an extent that they barely notice them at all. Sitel Solanke is a translator of materials and wants to change that. She is the founder and director of Matter, a relational practice focused on building and bridging kinships between people, materials, the immaterial and the virtual. Her work at Matter reorientates mindsets, behaviours and mechanisms towards futures that are caring and respectful by providing ecological and nuanced strategies that are biodiverse, inclusive and responsible. And she hyphenates the word responsible to emphasise our ability to respond. Author of Why Materials Matter and a textiles tutor at the Royal College of Art London, she was made an honorary fellow at Hereford College of Arts and received her fellowship at the RCA in 2018. She holds an MA in Textiles Futures from Central St Martins and she's worked with Potato Head Bali, Nike, Google, World Water Day, IKEA's Space 10, the British Council, the Design Museum and her work has been featured all over the world. She's also one of the cleverest people I know. Why don't we start at the beginning? Tell me about the roles that design, creativity and specifically materials and waste played in your childhood and early life. Oh, so many. So if I could say as early as I can remember, I mean, I started cooking at the age of five. So really, really long time ago. (laughs) It's always been a method. Paying respect to materials has always been present in my family and my upbringing so when I talk about materials in that regard it's more to do with like how valuable everything is around us and what we use and how we use it and um, what its purpose is what its benefits are and that can be through food uh, simply and I learned a lot through cooking I learned a lot through observing my mum cooking And I think these sorts of little almost kitchen hacks that she has in terms of, say, like you open a tin of tomatoes and you have this residue left over, right? So you would rinse that underneath the tap and you just swill it around and then you would put that residue back into the dish. And therefore there's not only is it good for recycling afterwards because you've cleaned it, but also you've understood the value uh, which the residue has for the you know the dish itself or whatever it is you're cooking and all these sorts of little tricks that she 
taught us unknowingly that they were actually part of this sort of philosophy of everything is valuable and you have to respect it and care for it in a way that you treat it as equals to yourself. And even if she would cook a dish and we, as a family of six, we couldn't like finish it and there were leftovers behind, she would place it into the fridge for, you know, like leftovers for the next day. But the next day she would completely transform into an entirely new dish. And that was unrecognizable from the day before. So it's this almost idea of renewal or reuse is what we call it now, I guess. But it was just leftovers that for us, you know, it was just a new dish. But respecting those leftovers enough, not just to serve them cold and a sort of lesser dish than yesterday's, but actually to give it new life. So it was just as delicious as the meal the day before. Completely. And also that not only is healthier because you've killed the bacteria and what have you, and it's actually valuing the fact that it has another life as well. And I think all of these sorts of principles were instilled in me from a very early age and have actually translated into my practice without knowing that it has been part of like sustainability or reuse or recycle or all these different terms that are very present in our daily lives now. But actually, it's just a philosophy of care and respect, ultimately. And I think... Yeah, I think that has played a really huge role in what my value systems are as a person and also as a professional, because I think though that those informal learnings have also informed my formal learnings as, you know, a practitioner, a designer. So they have almost converged in my practice now and are coexisting in this body of work that I'm producing or like working within like an ecosystem in itself so informality and formality and those forms of learnings are really important to me as a practitioner and a person actually because I think you need these days it's I think it's really important to build something based on values rather than just product I think Otherwise, we just end up with a very linear system that isn't inclusive of these complexities or systems or that actually take into account leftovers or these ideas of value and respect. It feels a bit more human-centric than it does planet-centric. And I think value systems offer a completely different perspective, one that is more inclusive, I think. Mm. And, and I think those those subconscious behaviours like swilling out the tomato can speak to values, don't they? That, that's something that's absolutely written through the DNA of the way your mum treated food. And I think there's, there's a real authenticity in something that's based on, on value systems rather than, as you say, on products. So you've talked a little bit about how those values that your mum instilled in you from a young age have sort of led into your practice as a, as a professional. Tell me about how the materials research design studio and consultancy matter that you established in 2015 came into being. Yes. So this has been a long journey and a journey which has taken me 
the best part of 13 years of being in my career before even getting to the point of launching it uh, in 2015. So I worked across so many different industries and sectors and disciplines and so many experiences have led me to see what linkages there are and what connections there are between all of those sectors and industries and disciplines and people even actually and methods and principles and ultimately everything was connected through materials and throughout those 13 years of experience working in fashion or automotive or architecture or interactive lighting installations or you know like even lifestyle brands or trend forecasting and all sorts of things styling even I've had so many lives previous to matter it's kind of allowed me to sort of zoom out and think what actually what was connecting them all together and the connection has definitely been material as the conduit and they have provided the glue to my whole existence I think if I think about it as my life but throughout my work experience nobody would ever really consider materials as the you know first point of call within the design sort of method so like materials would be something that would be added on towards the end of the design and it was something that was perhaps an afterthought I would say a lot of the time and that would be really quite tragic in some cases because the material was secondary and for the material to be secondary it wouldn't really be understood and wouldn't behave in a way that they might have wanted it to behave Mm -hmm. and therefore its purpose or the potential of that material it hadn't reached its potential basically and with that in mind it's also very wasteful because it hadn't reached its potential it would well, it wouldn't behave in the way that they intended it to they would then maybe use something else you know there would just be this sort of disconnection between the material and the design process and the human actually so this sort of lack of relationality or lack of respect I think as well or lack of knowledge even really frustrated me <laughs> ultimately it was my whole practice is built on frustration <laughs> I would say and this frustration has only been motivating for me because not only have I as a textile designer been misunderstood uh, because I think textile designers definitely are because we kind of exist in this no man's land of either just making textiles for fashion or you know the perceived view of textile designers are we make textiles for fashion and or we make textiles for interiors and actually there's so many other things that textiles can do and I definitely was questioning that throughout my whole career and still am I think Mm. and I don't think that question will ever end for me and I don't think it will end for society it's some materials are just so much more advanced than we are we will never get to understand them completely and new materials are always emerging 
So our relationship to materials is one of extraction and one of using it for as a resource rather than one that we begin to understand it or relate to it. Mm. And so matter has been built on those misconceptions or misunderstandings. And I want to bring more awareness or consciousness to what materials can do because they're way more intelligent than we are. And we get, need to understand them not only as designers, but as people in general, because materials have kind of existed in expertise sciences and also academia and there's incredible work going on in those spaces for sure and I'm definitely uh, respectful of that and part of it as well you know but they the materials haven't been accessible to the majority of people because it's lying within expertise but everybody uses the material everybody interacts with the material all day every day Mm. Even if you're sleeping, you're interacting with materials. Even, you know, you're brushing your teeth, there's a material present, like all the time. Mm. And this is related to our consumption habits, our behaviors, our mindsets, even how we treat things, how we consume things, how we dispose of things. So if we have a, a disconnection to materials, then we don't understand what role they play in our lives. And this is something that needs to be addressed very in an accessible and relatable way. And that's exactly what I do in my practice. So the idea of humanizing materials is a really big drive, I would say. So what I mean by humanizing is making them relatable. So rather than perceiving a material as it's, you know, currently categorized as wood, metal and plastic and glass and these kinds of things, it needs to be understood for what its behaviours and characteristics are. So it's emotional sort of qualities and then it's functional qualities, so what it can do. And that's how we understand each other and that's how we understand what we want to also design. So we understand like we want to design understanding how something functions and feels. So if we understand the materials in the same way, we can then implement materials at the very forefront of everything that we do mm -hmm. so that's something that I'm readdressing every time I have a project or even internal research that we're doing but um, ultimately it's making materials more accessible and relatable in order for mindsets behaviors and systems to change and I, I think one of the ways you've done that you, you sort of talk about making materials more human and more accessible. And I think one of the brilliant ways you've done that is through your book, Why Materials Matter. For those who haven't seen it, it's a thing of beauty. It's a huge hardback, almost neon mint green tome. It's wonderful. And it, it's bursting with, well, materiality, I suppose. It even smells amazing. And my copy was secondhand. <laughs> so <laughs> I was very impressed with that. The book's subtitle is Responsible Design for a Better World. So I guess my question is twofold. Why do materials matter? And why is an understanding of materials so crucial for today's designers who are hopefully trying to design a better world in a more responsible way? And you've started to touch on that, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, the fact that everybody has an interaction with the material, whether it's through 
habits, behaviors, or daily functions, it's based on consumption. This idea of consumption is always present in our lives, whatever we're doing, whether it's consuming data or whether it's consuming knowledge or whether it's consuming food. You know, it's like these very sort of behavioral sort of tasks we have in our daily lives, they're all very material, you know. So materials have kind of been very limited previously, I think, because we've just framed them in these very sort of strict categories and very sort of tight categories where only experts If you know what the material can do, you can therefore understand where to look for them. So, you know, like how materials libraries are categorized, like textiles are just kind of put into one box, but actually textiles are made from so many things, like so many things. How can you begin to understand what these textiles can do and where they've come from, like have that kind of connection or relationship to it? And this is really problematic because then these materials are kind of discriminated against, actually. I call it material discrimination because these materials haven't reached their potential. And that's a real shame. I'm like, well, that's a real shame and also really unfair. There's like an injustice happening with materials. And there's an injustice to material designers sometimes, I think. But even though now we're seeing a surge and an in, uh, a real interest in material designers, I think. And I just don't want that to be something that's a trend or fleeting trend. And I hope that's something that's here to stay. But I wouldn't even call them material designers. They're just designers that happen to work with materials. All designers work with materials regardless. Mm. And so I don't necessarily think there should be a separate category for material designers, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm think design should just be very inclusive of materials so I mean right now we're seeing that title merging emerging should I say but I don't think that will last too long I think it should just be like under one umbrella and that's totally fine but this idea of yeah I think these limitations that have been placed on materials and them not reaching their full potential is because it's it's lying with expertise and not accessible is not only to the categorization, but it's also because we haven't really understood the depth and the breadth that materials can offer us like bacteria as a material. That's something that I've written about in the book or whether it's water as a material, that's something more abstract or, you know, whether it's digital materials, even I think like looking at materials as like more holistically, and spiritually, actually, I think that those sorts of aspects are really important because it's one of culture, actually. One, like culture plays a really crucial role in materials and how we engage with them or how we've associated with them as well. And that's something I'm very conscious of bringing into the dialogue of materials because I think it's one that it feels like it could is of biodiversity and not a monoculture because we see these nuances forming between the cultures. Different cultures have different ways of representing their materialities or 
their sort of relationships to it. And there's so many learnings that we can take from that rather than it feeling like, oh, there should be a universal way in which we operate or how materials should look or behave or what they should be used for. So I think there's this idea of the understanding or the lack of understanding is one that hasn't been representative of culture. I think it's always been this sort of Western lens on what design is and can do. And I think that has really come from the term design and designer, actually. And I think it's less accessible for all cultures because it's one where it's hierarchical. You know, a designer's role feels like it's quite an important one or like a professional one, a learned one. And really, it's an exercise of translation, actually, and one that is translating materials into these forms Mm. that happen to have different uses. And for me, I've been really questioning the term designer and design for myself, because I work internationally, even during the pandemic and lockdown, I'm still working internationally, but my dialogue somehow needs to shift or my engagement needs to shift in a way that feels more inclusive and less hierarchical and less egotistical because I think the term designer is loaded with ego actually because it's one person like one person apparently has agency over something like this and actually you know the material itself doesn't have the agency it's the person that does and I want the material to be part of my dialogue or part of my it is a collaborator for me it's not something that is doesn't have a consciousness it does so it's its own being it's way more intelligent than I am so I need to listen to it and I need it to be part of my team actually Mm. and I think you you talked about our relationship with materials being one of extraction and use And that makes me think very much of the take make waste model of the linear economy, whereas actually a a circular economy model is one of dialogue and one of renewal. And that fits much better with this idea of a translator rather than, as you say, a designer that's imposing ideas onto a material. I like that. After the break, I talked to Sital about the language of materials, why we need to stop calling waste waste, why we need to decolonize the language of materials and make it anti-capitalistic. you're a designer maker here's what I want you to know none of this is your fault climate change ocean acidification falling biodiversity levels none of it but you do get to be part of the solution and the best part that gets to be creative collaborative and filled with wide-eyed curiosity remember that visit katietrigidden.com forward slash membership and leave your eco guilt at the door Find a community of fellow travellers, clear, actionable steps you can take today and all the support you need to join the circular economy. Visit katietrigidden.com forward slash membership. I'll see you there. (laughs) 
So your book was divided into three sections, everyday sciences and expansive. And I'm, I'm guessing from what you've just said, the reason that you didn't use kind of categorizations like metal and plastic or traditional Western ways of looking at things was to try and shake that up a little bit and challenge some of those Western perspectives. Can you explain a little bit more about how that categorization system helped you to do that? Yeah, it's quite hard. <laughs> I would say it was not easy to think of an alternative way of categorizing these materials. And really, it was trying to create different ecosystems or ecologies of sorts. And that was driven through process, actually. And that's how these three chapters came about. So everyday materials were treated in a way where you know, something like leather offcuts from a designer called Jorge Pinades. He's used leather offcuts from the fashion industry and remolded them into something that's really structural by binding it with a glue that's been made from animal bones. And so the entire thing is carnivorous, but it's also residue or like surpluses from a, a very sort of troubled industry I would say and leather is such an everyday material but it's been transformed into something that the material perhaps hadn't been known for or could have been known for so again it's this idea of a translation exercise in an everyday material being translated into something with an entirely different use than its original than its origin and then sciences is a chapter about how science and design are becoming, you know, partners really. And whether it's growing a bacteria in a, in a laboratory that's originated from soil. And that's from this agency in London called Faber Futures, led by Natsai Audrey Tiesa, dear friend of mine. And she has been working with a scientist for the, yeah, the past, over 10 years now, developing a dye from bacteria that has originated from soil in a laboratory that has been entirely synthesized. And it can be used as a dye for textiles, which has very little water to none. And it's not damaging our water streams. It's not extractive in the same way as other dyes are it's anti-pollutant in a way and so that sort of collaborative effort with science and design is something that's I think always been present it's just shining a light on it in a way where sometimes the invisible materials are becoming visible basically and then expansive is a chapter that is more abstract actually it's kind of expanding our view of what materials can be such as water such as digital such as air you know like Tino Subert is a designer who has almost filtered carbon from the air and collected that harvested it and generated a so from the carbon black actually that's been collected is then used as a dye for textiles, also lead for pencils, the printing ink and all sorts of things. And it's actually questioning what a material is basically throughout the whole book. 
So the abstract or more expansive side of it is like hopefully a bit more boundary pushing and getting people to view materials, not as just things that are very physical and present. And are you seeing this sense of pushing the boundaries about what a material is? And I guess from my personal area of interest, how waste can be used as a material amongst the students that you're teaching? Are you starting to see that change coming through the next generation? Yep, it is definitely very present in curriculum. I think we, I teach at the RTA, I teach on textiles and I'm a tutor there and one of the learning outcomes has a link like is about sustainability basically so there needs to be at least efforts placed on what area of sustainability are you looking at is it societal is it labor or is it like culture you know there's so many areas in which students can sort of question what sustainable practices are for them and I think that's yeah that didn't exist when I was a student no way and I think because there's been more emphasis and more transparency around what we can do as a society to change our behaviors and if it can begin in these learning spaces such as the younger generation it becoming the norm rather than something that's an option and I think that is really encouraging to see especially with the student cohort that I have the honour of, you know, guiding, really. Uh, I think they're really savvy, to be honest. I have no doubt they're actually going to be the generation that actually can see this change. I don't think my generation will, but uh, I think my generation is about developing the tools somewhat to pass on, basically. I don't think I'll see this change, but I, I do hope the uh, the generations that come after me do, mm. or at least help shape it in some way. But I think sustainability still feels optional in other places. Maybe that's changed a bit more dramatically now. And I think it's on people's minds a lot more than it has been. And I think I'm busier than I've ever been in my life. So <laughs> maybe that's also a sign, uh, but there's definitely, there's hunger, there's appetite. I just hope that people can do it justice and do it in a way that's not just replacing a material for, you know, like for like. That's not really where we need to be. It's all about systemic change and materials can enable that, but we need to do it in a way where it, is driving it towards systemic change. And how does waste as a raw material specifically fit into that systemic change? So there's a number of ways in which that is present in that sort of conversation and method. One is not calling it waste first. I think we need to become more material literate. Uh, as a society, we're very illiterate around materials. So I'm developing, well, I'm writing a second book, actually, which is about the language of materials, and it's going to be addressing all of those terms. One about decolonizing language and another making anti-capitalistic. So 
and having multiple translations of that as well. So it feels like we can have the East and West dialogue and also the Global North and Global South involved and not just a European lens. Can you share some specific examples of words that you perhaps might have come up with better definitions for or better translations for? I don't know if it's better, it's just different. So there's one word called Ubuntu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, so forgive me if I'm not. And basically it's a word which is representative of sustainability in a very holistic way. So basically it's a South African word, well, it's originated from there. And it says here, a quality that includes the essential human virtues, compassion and humanity. And there's multiple translations of it, but it's philosophical. So I think it's one of care and respect ultimately. Mm. And I think for me, that's what sustainability is, is care and respect. And that is one where if we're taking that, we need to give back. So yeah, it just feels it's more of a feedback loop than anything Mm. rather than it being like, oh, it's transactional. So I'll just take it and you can just deal with it actually. Mm. Actually that has a really damaging impact. It's quite traumatic actually. And one that needs healing. So, yeah, there'll be like multiple translations of Ubuntu. I think they'll, uh, sustainability, sorry, Ubuntu being one, but there'll be other languages that potentially are involved because a lot of languages aren't written. And that's kind of interesting because it's an embodied one. You know, like I learned how to cook by observing and not following instructions, like in a recipe book. So, it feels very intuitive for me to cook rather than feeling like an exercise of reading, basically, or following instruction. So it just feels really embodied and I just intuitively do it. So sometimes words can't capture everything. So that's something that I'm taking into account as well. Mm. And I guess these systemic changes that we need and personal changes that we need have to become embodied, right? It's no good us just talking about this stuff and writing about it. For real change to happen, it's about behavior and it's about those dialogues and those sort of that circularity that you talked about in having relations with the things we're taking and and thinking about how we can give back. I'm looking forward to this book. When's it coming out? (laughs) It's so overwhelming, this book to me. Because it's way bigger than anything that I have ever done, I think. So 2022, it will be out. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. But there'll be other voices in it as well, so not just mine. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But this idea of circularity is interesting to me because I've been really looking at it quite deeply and thinking about this idea of like circularity is just perpetuating more and more it's just self-perpetuating it just keeps going round and round but actually we need to think about what inputs it has and what outputs it has as well so I think maybe that model needs to be inclusive of that rather than it just swilling round and round if that makes sense and I've written a piece about reincarnation being the original circular economy and it's more of a philosophical one but I think it's one based on like values 
actually. And that does go back to like care and respect and karma and things like this. Mm. And I think if you look at pre-capitalist societies, most of them had some sort of spiritual belief that involved what we would now see as sustainable practices. So there was a culture somewhere on the planet and I forget where where every time they took salmon from the river they would put the bones back into the river and in their belief system that was about honoring the salmon gods and kind of returning what they'd taken but I think it reminded them you know they weren't just dredging that river with trawler nets they were sort of very carefully taking something and very carefully putting something back and it it reminded them of that care and respect and that circularity and I think where we've lost some of these spiritual kind of frameworks, I think we've lost that connection with the natural world. So I think some of those more philosophical, spiritual viewpoints are actually really beneficial, even in just a very scientific way of kind of how much the planet's gotten and how much we can take before we start running out. Exactly. I don't see spirituality as just this airy-fairy thing. It has scientific principles as well. And it's something that I think can be measured in an t- entirely different way. It's just not measured in an economical way, basically. And I think that's the difference. It's like, because we're living in a capitalist society, everything's driven on growth, economical growth, but actually there are organic growths as well involved in our society, but capitalism doesn't include that. It's actually devoid of that. Mm. And therefore its value system is devoid as well but actually we do need that and these current models or systems we have in place are they're just outdated and we can't operate in the same way anymore we just can't we need to be working in this third space which is what I call the third space is like living between these polarities where it is I know care I mean it could be respect but also disrespect and like what is the in-between because everything should be about balance ultimately and it's very similar to how you were describing like this sort of worshipping what you have taken like with the salmon this idea of worship was kind of really interesting as a practice anyway because I think it's framed on rituals and practice forming all of your rituals basically so a practice is much bigger than the self in a way because you will never be able to beat it the practice will always beat you like yoga for example I will never be able to be even though I practice yoga every day I will never conquer yoga ever and I think that just sort of adds this layer of humility and humbleness and that I'm not the dominant one here. I think that's almost the problem with our history of consumption and extraction is it has been about conquering. You know, we've we've wanted to conquer the world and conquer markets. And there's been this very sort of aggressive language around the way that we treat materials. I think that's a really valuable point, actually, that having a bit more humility in the face of, you know, the limited resources we have on this planet and the the huge amount of people that we need to share them with. I think more humility in that dialogue would be very valuable indeed. Yeah, because actually we need to get out of this human centric model that we are in towards a more planet-centric one, which offers that humility, actually. 
And also, I think it's not only a human-centric model, but I think it's a Western global North-centric model. And I think we need to be in kind of understanding that human is a broader term than we usually use it <laughs> to mean. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you've been writing and speaking about and exploring materials and waste for many, many years, as you said, for a long time before you founded Matter. Do you get the sense that things are changing? Yes, to a degree. I would say, at least with materials, that's something that more and more people are discussing and more and more people are becoming aware of. So that has changed quite dramatically, I think, over the past five years. And that is only a good thing, I feel, even if it does feel like there's just this surge of people working within this space. But that can hopefully drive some sort of change, at least. But I think there's also something around like newness here, which I find quite problematic, actually, because I think with newness, it means there's this idea of opportunity, basically, or one of, oh, newness is exciting, it's new, and it's like one that people latch on to, and who knows how long it will last. And maybe it's not necessarily about newness or this idea of innovation or this idea of like worshipping something that's new actually is really troubling to me mm. because we for then forget actually what was working in the first place. And there's so many materials in the world and maybe it's us trying to rethink how we use them first as well. And there's there's kind of in a newness in that, let alone like newness in developing a new material. I think a lot of the time people are looking at the solution mindset is something that's very present. And that is driven on capitalism, I think. And so is newness. But we can't operate like that ultimately, like all the time, because there are so many materials that we haven't given the space or the, they haven't fulfilled their potential in the first place. We have 160,000 unique materials on the planet. Wow. Yeah. Where, where are they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows about all these materials? How have they been utilized? Where are they in the world and how are we applying them? Are they even being applied? I don't know. But like, how about we think about how to best utilize them first, as well as like thinking about the material, the newer ideas around waste and materials, because waste can only exist if we don't use something to its full potential. So there's something in that I think needs to be readdressed in the first place. So it's kind of trying to find this balance between newness and what we already have available to us and not feeling like it's one or the other, but there's like this in-between state or there's this balance of the two coexisting together because we can't just keep generating new things. Mm. So what do you think the future holds for waste? Do you think we can get to a place where there is no more waste? No, I think we'll always have waste. It's just what we do with the waste is the most important part because I think we need to reevaluate waste and not call it waste mm. 
and call it surplus because I think there's more value in that. Mm. So we need to almost reframe our relationship with waste entirely. Mm. Um, I think that's behavioral. I think that also comes from the individual as well to begin with, which then informs like how we dispose of things as well and our behaviors towards disposability or our behaviors towards longevity even and because like when we dispose of things in our homes and like general rubbish you know put them in the bin the council comes and collects it we have no agency over where that goes we pay for this service but we have no agency as to where that ends up this is crazy to me like I mean, I have a responsibility for the waste I produced in my home, but yet I don't have a responsibility when it leaves my home. And I think this is really mad to me, but also like it's part of the system. But why there needs to be something there that needs to be addressed, I think. But we will always have waste because we are creatures that consume and those consumption habits will always create waste. Even this idea of a zero waste lifestyle, I think is a myth, actually. Even with a zero waste lifestyle, what happens to your, I don't know, metal container once you no longer are around? What happens to that? Who is accountable for that? Like making that container itself generated waste when it was being made. So you, you we just can't think about like, that's very linear, I think, still, like the zero waste lifestyle. I think all the little nooks and crannies of that that very system aren't really being looked at enough, I think. Mm. If we're consuming, there will always be waste. But we, we need to consume in order to survive. So it's just how we respect what waste is to us and our relationship to it more than anything. And the systems generated around it can be readdressed as well. So it's about redefining waste and, and showing it more respect and being more accountable for it. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Sital. It's been so lovely to talk to you. And I'm very grateful for some really quite profound insights there, I think. <laughs> yeah, I can like talk forever. So you have to stop me. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Circular with Katie Tregidden, can I ask you to leave a review and perhaps even hit the subscribe button? Those two actions really help other people to find the podcast, so I would be very grateful. Thank you. Thank you to Sitel Solanke, Gordon Barker for the edit, October Communications for marketing support, Sound Compound for the music, and to you for joining me. You've been listening to Circular with Katie Tregidden. Thank you.